All right. Good morning, everybody. Apparently, there's a football game today. Have you heard about it? Maybe you haven't, right? It kind of gets you excited uh, a little bit. Well, good morning. I want to welcome you again. For those of you that I haven't had a chance to meet, my name is John Anderson. I'm the campus pastor here and would love to connect with you uh, at some point and uh, get to know a little bit more about you. But we're so glad that you're here today. Let me just reiterate that. We love new people. Uh, I hope all of you, those of you sitting in the lobby today, were thankful and never thought you'd get to worship next to groceries. But there you are. Uh, we, we just kind of pack it all in uh, here today. So whether you like sports or whether you like football or not, it is hard to argue with the fact that this, this game, the Super Bowl, has kind of become a, a public spectacle. It's almost become a national holiday. Uh, the, the statistics of the number of workers that call in sick tomorrow uh, will skyrocket, uh, it feels like, every year. And so just kind of to, to get a feel for what we've got here today, and maybe you'll learn something about the person sitting next to you, just a quick little poll. Uh, you can only raise your hand, uh, well, you can raise your hand more than once, I guess. We, we can do whatever we want here. So how many of you are super excited about the game. Just you're going to watch the game. You're a football fan. Six of you like football. Great. Um, that was a terrible introduction to the sermon then. Um, the rest of you are bored out of your mind. Um, how many of you are going to go maybe come here for the party later this afternoon or you're going to watch the game just for the commercials? You are the commercial funny people kind of rating the commercial. Okay, you're some of those people. Awesome. How many of you uh, could absolutely care less about any game involving a ball? Anybody care about sports? Okay. Gotcha. Uh, maybe the most important one, how many of you are grieving Vikings fans? Anybody still recovering? Okay, gotcha. Support group meets in room 202 right after the service for those of you that are struggling with that. That's okay, wherever you're at, whatever posture you have uh, towards the game, because there is more to life than football. Amen? Amen. We know this. In fact, I just saw a press release um, of a press conference this past week. Uh, Nick Foles over here, the Eagles quarterback, and the green over here uh, was the backup quarterback. Now he's the starting quarterback. Uh, all of a sudden, leads his team to the Super Bowl, and he just said to the media this week that after his um, football career is done, that he's going to become a pastor, which is ironic because after my pastoral career is done, I'm going to become an NFL quarterback. So, <clears throat> yeah, it's amazing how that happens, isn't it? Just the, the turn of events there. So, uh, there is no, there is way more to life than football, and it is evidence of the state of our lobby right now, which is a holy mess. We've been doing this uh, tables upon tables back there, way more groceries than we've ever had in the past, like quadruple the number we've ever had in the past. You are an incredibly generous church as we uh, participate. Yeah, praise God. That is awesome. So awesome. Um, We've been doing this Super Bowl, S-O-U-P, uh, food drive for so many years now that this year when I'm typing up emails and writing things, I just, I can't spell super the right way. I just type in S-O-U-P as if there's no football. It's just about the food drive and uh, super, super exciting. So thank you to those of you that brought food uh, for that. And in case you think this is just sort of like a, well, I bought my Brega groceries. It doesn't really matter. It's kind of insignificant. And in case you think that this is just sort of some throwaway project, I read this past week that every single day in Polk County, around the, the towns and the neighborhoods and the people that live next to you, there are over 27,000 people that suffer from hunger every single day, 13,000 of which are kids. So those of you that have kids, particularly young kids, imagine a young family with kids going to a food pantry, which happens a lot, as we discovered in the month of February, and going to a food pantry and the cupboard being bare. 
and the shelves being bare because there's a big push, rightly so. Everybody's in the giving mood around the holidays, right? So November, December, they're stocked. January, we're still doing pretty good. But February, it just lines up with the Super Bowl, that that's helpful, uh, is that the shelves are pretty bare. And so uh, knowing that you're making a significant difference in somebody's life, that they don't maybe know where they're going to get food the next time. These aren't just kids. Think about your kids and the love you have for them or your grandkids. These are God's kids, and so they're our kids, and so we care for them. These are God's families, God's people. And so through all of our campuses, God willing, as in previous years after this weekend, we're going to fill up five or six semi-trucks with tons and tons of food and over 95 food pantries. Every single food pantry that we have found in central Iowa is going to be full after this weekend because of what God has done through you. Praise God for that. That's going to be awesome. Really exciting. And there is no way we could do that alone. None of you can stock every pantry uh, alone. We need each other. And as we say around hope a lot, a phrase we love is, we're better together, right? So turn to your neighbor right now, look at him and say, neighbor, we're better together. Tell him that right now. We are better together. Absolutely. Well, we are uh, jumping right into it today. We are continuing a series. If you want to take out your Bibles, we've been in a series uh, called Genesis, and it is a binge-worthy Bible series. And so we've been looking at the book of Genesis through the lens of uh, maybe some of your favorite TV shows, at least some of the popular ones as well. And so if you look at that list and you're like, oh, I missed out, well, you should have been here because we want you to be here every week uh, to see what God's word has to say. But we looked at This Is Us last week with the story of Abraham and Sarah, and this week we're jumping in to uh, the series The Crown, which is kind of this British historical uh, fiction uh, based, based on history, living history actually, uh, right now, and we're going to dive in and look at the story of Isaac and Jacob today. But before we do that, I want to tell you a quick story to kind of set the stage for where we're going with our story today. Does anybody remember being in high school? Okay, three of you, great. Some of you, uh, some of you are in high school right now. When I was in high school, my senior year of high school, I was kind of a, a theater geek, kind of a theater nerd, and I loved all things plays and musicals and everything uh, like that because I just have a really, really hard time being up in front of people. Uh, it's not a strong suit uh, of mine, and so I had to really work at that in high school, uh, being kind of shy. And so uh, my senior year, I finally got like one of the lead roles in the high school uh, musical, which happened to be Hello, Dolly, that year. And so my part was Horace Vandergelder, and I was this man that walked around and talked like this. And so I just, it, I just consumed myself with this role. You ever read uh, documentaries of Hollywood actors that just, they become the character? Do you know what I mean? I just, it wasn't just lines for me. Like, I became Horace Vandergelder. And so I had my script. I had my book, and I underlined things, and I highlighted things, and different colors of highlights for different movements, and my speaking parts, and my singing parts, and, and, and underlining my stage directions, everything. I mean, it was my script. I'd become this. It was who I was, and I didn't know what to do early on in the, the planning of this and the practice without my script. Well, we happened to live about four or five blocks from the high school where we were rehearsing one night. And I remember this, this is kind of funny that this is a really random story that I'm telling you this, but it popped into my head and I was uh, kind of running and hopping and, and like skipping. I don't, who skips, but I was. And so I was kind of skipping home from rehearsal one night. It was like 10 o'clock at night and I was kind of crossing the street and I was really excited to get home and, and have a snack or whatever. And I was so excited that my, my knee popped up when I was skipping, and I had my, my precious playbook, my script to know what to do was in my hand, and I just remember it like it was yesterday. I went up, and I popped it, and it knocked my script, and it went like that, and you know the little opening in the gutter that goes down to the sewer? 
just went right, and it was like one of those Hollywood slow motion moments, like, no, right? It was falling down in there, and I just watched it, and the worst thing is I could see it covered in brown and green and yellow, icky, slimy, blech. It was in there. I'm like, no, my precious script. And so I didn't know what to do. And I, my arm, it was way down there. So my go-go gadget arm didn't work. I couldn't reach it uh, in there. And so I went home and I found my brother uh, who was home from college. And so I'm like, hey, I need your help. Uh, you know, I dropped my, my, my script for the musical, my lead role uh, in the sewer. And he said, that's, that's going to be a great excuse tomorrow, John, when you go to school. Like, my dog ate my homework. My script is in the sewer, okay? So that's my excuse. Like, well, I'll help you. So we go out to the garage, and we get shovels and rakes and brooms. And here we are, the two pastor's kids, walking down the middle of the road at 1030 at night with shovels and rakes and, like, pitchforks probably, and walking down. And we get to the sewer, and we're, like, reaching down in it and trying to get it out. And every time we maybe pinch it together, it falls down, and it gets more soggy and icky, slimy, licky, blech in there. And I'm like, oh, this isn't working, so we got to go home. we got to get our dad to help us. And then my mom hears of it, and she's like, i got to see this. And so we are the pastor's family walking down the middle of the road. This is 11 o'clock at night now to retrieve the script that I lost. And we get it, and we finally kind of pinch it. It falls back down. And when you don't know what to do, when every man is at a loss and doesn't know what to do, you do what my dad did, and you get a big old roll of duct tape. And you just wrap the end of the broom and the rake and the shovel together, and we pinch it, and eventually we got it out as it stuck to the duct tape. And as we brought it out, I remember my dad holding it like this, and it was just like a soggy napkin. I mean, my script was just done for. Like, needless to say... I couldn't use it anymore. Like, I don't know who I am. And, and the next day I have to go in and, and, and ask for a different one, but they don't have any. And so I have to borrow somebody else's. But it's somebody else's script. It's somebody else's lines. It doesn't have my highlights. And so I'm a, I'm a loss for words. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to, to sing. It's just, I look at it and I go, this isn't me. And I tell you that story to ask you this. Do you ever feel like you've been handed a script that's not yours? Because if you think about it, every single one of us is playing a part in life as well, whether we realize it or not. All of us are playing a character. All of us are playing a role that we believe is who we truly are. But have you ever felt like you've been given a script and the script that you're working from just isn't compatible with your authentic self of like who God created you to be? And if we're not careful, we can live many years of our lives living out of other people's expectations, living out of guilt or shame or, or maybe unnecessary pressure that we put on ourselves or maybe out of a wound or something that was spoken to you or done to you at a very early age and unknowingly you are living out that reality because you think it's who you have to be and you forget that you get to write the end of your story regardless of how it began. It's like we're reading lines out of a script that that isn't ours, just like I was that year. Now, I want you to know this, this is far deeper than you know, a, a different script, like you were going to be a teacher with your life and now you're an accountant or a plumber or whatever, like this is not who I am. I'm talking about something deeper than your job. I'm talking about your identity. I'm talking about who you are in the deepest part of you, why you do what you do, your personality, who, who you are on the inside. What's fueling that? How did you become who you are? And I believe that if we'll slow down and take an honest look, we'll find that we're all on this search for our real script. All of us are on a search 
for who we really are, for who God has called us to be. And the reason that most of us struggle with this, you're like, John, this isn't making... The reason that most of us struggle with this is because of what I would call these false identities that we place on our scrolls, the, the, the scripts that we've been handed from a very early age. For some of you, you are the pleaser. You don't know it, but that's the story you're living out. You can't be okay unless certain people that you've determined in your life can tell you who you are, tell you you're okay. In the psychology world, they call that codependency. I can't just be okay. For some of you, the false identity is you're the perfectionist. Everything has to be a certain way, and when you're not in control, you freak out because everything has to be perfect. The workaholic, the jokester that hides their hurt and pain behind the jokes and being the class clown, the victim, the doormat that gets walked all over constantly because you can't stick up for yourself, the tough guy that doesn't show emotion, the tough gal that has it all together. It's not who you really are, but these realities, these false identities can define large parts of our lives. And I've got really, really good news for you this morning. God is not going to leave you that way. He has a plan and he has a purpose for your life, and God has something way better in mind than you being a poser and you living out of these false identities. God has an identity for you as a son or daughter of God, of the Most High King. And what happens is we go on this journey in our lives. God wants to take you on this journey of immaturity to maturity, of understanding not just who everybody else has called you to be, but God says this is who you already are. And the more we live into that, the more we experience the abundant life that he offers us. And so as a case study for that, we're going to look at our main character in our story today through the lens of Jacob's story to discover the journey of identity, of discovering who God has truly called us to be with Jacob in mind. So if you have your Bibles, open up to Genesis chapter 25. So a little bit before our reading today, Genesis chapter 25 is where we're going to start today. So if you remember last week, we looked at Abraham and Sarah. They have a son eventually uh, that's named Isaac. And Isaac had grown older in age, and so the story continues with this family line. And Isaac uh, grows up and is now older himself. Isaac's wife is named Rebecca, and they are getting up in age into their 60s and 70s, past normal childbearing age, and yet just like his father, they're unable to have kids. But finally, they get pregnant, and they're going to have twins. And so we pick up the story in chapter 25, verse 22. It says, but the two children, the two babies, struggled with each other in her womb. So she went to the Lord to ask about it. And this next line, I'm guessing, I'm just inferring here. Uh, I've talked to, to plenty of moms. I've married to one. This has to be something that she says in her third trimester. She says, why is this happening to me? Okay? Moms, can you identify? This is like the honeymoon cute stage of I'm pregnant is well over. You're like, get the kid out of me, right? Like, let's just be done. With that. Why is this happening to me? She asked, right? And beyond all the goofiness there, don't miss this. Remember this. Jacob's story before he's even born, starts with a wrestling match. Remember that. You're going to need that later on. Jacob's story begins with a wrestling match. And so they're finally born, verse 25. The first one, the first baby, was very red at birth and covered with thick hair like a fur coat. Like, what? This is, right? So they named him Esau, which literally means red one, okay? Red hair, right? So then you have the second baby, Verse 26, and the older, the other twin was born, this is Jacob, 
comes out of the womb with his hand grasping the heel of his older brother. And so they named him Jacob, which is, comes from a Hebrew word, and it kind of can mean one of two things, depending on how it's used. It can mean heel, conveniently, but it also means deceiver. And so, you know, the birth announcement and, oh, they're having a baby shower. Rebecca, how did you name your boys, right? What, what is the cute little Bible meaning of their names? We've got hairy guy and deceiver. So that's great, okay? It's a great way to start. Why does the author of Genesis choose to include these details? Because from as early as birth, Jacob is handed the script, deceiver. He comes out grasping trying to get something, steal something that isn't his. I want to be the firstborn. Grabbing his brother's heel, like it's like his lot in life, like the script that he's been given, always trying to get ahead, which is going to play out in all sorts of ways later on because this is just the beginning of the feud. And as an aside, just a little aside here, I've done enough weddings and funerals to know now and been enough to family gatherings, and you know this, to know that family dysfunction follows you wherever you go. Sibling rivalry never goes away. And those of you that have tension in your family with your parents or with siblings, regardless of how old you are or what you do, time does not heal all wounds. Jesus does. That is a flat-out lie that time heals all wounds because wherever you go, there you are, and that follows with you. It's very illustrated in the story of Jacob and Esau. It takes 30, 40 years for them to heal the wound of this event right here. It doesn't go away. Sibling rivalry and tension and bitterness and relationship struggles don't go away unless you confront them head-on and invite the Holy Spirit into those conversations. Time doesn't heal all wounds. Jesus does. Amen? Remember that as we move forward because this is just the beginning of the feud. If you got your Bibles, flip over to Genesis 27. That's where we go next in the story. Isaac is getting older, and so he knows he's going to die soon, and it's time for him to give the fatherly blessing. And some of you are like, well, that's not really a big deal. Just like, hey, buddy, I love you. Hey, buddy, I love you. You know, just like you would do for your kids. Well, in Old Testament days, the family blessing was a much bigger thing. It was about an inheritance. It was like, who gets the family lot here? And so Esau, being the older brother, is going to get a bigger part, slice of the pie, a bigger part of the inheritance. He's, he's carrying on the family name, the, the legacy. And so Isaac tells Esau, go get some food and come back. We'll have a ceremonial meal together. And when he comes back, I'll give you the blessing. Well, it turns out there's not just sibling rivalry, there's parents playing favorites. And just as an aside as well, if you are a parent today, it is a really good idea to love your kids equally, okay? Just that helps with family dynamics, okay? Esau, excuse me, Isaac loved Esau because he was more of the rugged outdoors, kind of Brad Pitt, you know, hairy type. And, but Rebecca, the mom, loved Jacob more because he was more kind of a mama's boy and liked to stay around home. And so she loves Jacob more and she catches wind that that Isaac is going to give the blessing to the older brother. And so knowing that Isaac was old, that he wouldn't be able to see anyway, she devises this plan. And so Jacob goes and decides, I'm going to go steal the birthright at the prompting of his mother. Talk about family dysfunction, right? So Jacob, instead of doing what was right in God's eyes, without even thinking, falls into the script that he was handed at birth. Oh yeah, this is just what I do. I'm a grasper. I'm a deceiver. I take what's not mine when I don't get what I want. And without even thinking about it, he falls into this false identity. 
And so he brings food, and he get this, his mom helps him dress in goat skin so that when his dad touches him, it'll look like hairy guy, okay? I can't make this up. It's like a bad soap opera right in the middle of Genesis here, okay? So he ends up getting the blessing. His father talks to him, and you can imagine only for Esau to come back and discover what's happened, and he is furious, and he starts chasing Jacob, like running for his life. The reality is, is that Jacob now finds himself with a script as now the firstborn son that he never expected, and he, now he's in charge of carrying on the, the family legacy and the family name. This weight of expectations and guilt and shame is now upon him. Flash forward a few thousand years across the pond to Great Britain, and nobody knows that feeling better than the main character in the show we're going to look at today called The Crown, none other than Queen Elizabeth II, or Elizabeth Windsor, as she was originally known. How many of you, just a show of hands, have seen this show, The Crown? Anybody seen it? Okay, quite a few of you. That's good. So those of you that haven't seen it, it debuted a few years ago, and it kind of chronicles the story of Queen Elizabeth II of England from her humble beginnings to her reign as queen. And the reason it's historical fiction is it's based on reality because she's still alive. She's the longest running monarch in history. She's 91. And so uh, it's pretty crazy. I have to say, I wasn't very familiar uh, with the show, but after spending a week watching a British drama, I apologize if I just drop into a bit of an English accent once in a while, just a wee bit during the rest of the sermon. So you have to apologize uh, in that way. So, um, I don't know about you, but whenever I watch anything British, I just feel smarter. Do you? I just like, so I'm just like feeling really smart because I've been watching this show this week. So fascinating. In a very parallel story, another way of understanding the Jacob and Esau story of the birthright here and, and the blessing that gets passed down, Elizabeth's uncle, Edward, is the king, and yet a couple years into his reign, he abdicates the throne. He essentially gives away the family inheritance, okay, we've seen this story before, to his brother, We've seen this story before, King George. And King George is the king. And then when King George dies, right, who's next in line but his daughter, Elizabeth Windsor. And so here she is. Here's Elizabeth at age 26, right? What were you doing when you were 26? Some of you are 26 right now. Like, at least she can rent a car now. But, like, she's 26, and she's been given this brand-new identity, this new set of expectations She's essentially the religious and political leader of an entire country at age 26 as life hands her this script and says, you are now royalty, which means that this is who you are. When that crown is placed on your head, you have to live into that whether it's who you are or not. Talk about a script being handed to you. Take a short look at this opening clip, which is a montage of kind of the first few seasons, including some scenes that give you a picture of the weight of expectations and this false identity that is placed upon Elizabeth as the queen. Let's take a look. The crown must always win. You must hide who you truly are Elizabeth, and take on this script that's being handed to you. You can feel the weight of the lofty expectations, and some of you are living out of the same thing. You have your own crown to bear that has been handed to you. There's this set of expectations that you're forced to take on until the very end of that clip, just a powerful question, and Queen Elizabeth asks, so where does that leave me? Who, who am I supposed to be? 
What about the real me that's underneath the mask and the, the, the poser and the facade of being the Queen of England? That there is a broken, messed up little girl that's trying to discover who she is. Have you ever asked that about yourself? God, who am I? Who have you actually created me to be as a man or woman of God? Am I being who you've called me to be or am I living out of somebody else's expectations or in response to the other voices that have been so strong in my life for so long? And this isn't some hypothetical, this isn't just historical fiction anymore. This is the stories, these are the stories of our community. It's the mom of three young kids that I met a few years ago that despite all of her best attempts, she still feels like she needs to please her mom with every decision she makes. It's the 33-year-old man that I talked to last month who'd never stopped and thought through, why is it that I burn myself out working 75 hours a week? It's the spouse who seems incapable of admitting that they're wrong, ever. It's the church shopper that bounces from church to church and small group to small group, judging everybody else, judging other Christians, and essentially claiming nobody really understands me. It's the 40-year-old successful businessman who, in one of our men's Bible studies a few years ago, started to openly weep when an older man came and put his hand on him and spoke the Father's blessing over him that he had never received and said, I am so, God is so proud of you. It's the middle-aged, highly successful professional businesswoman that I met after a funeral about a month ago, weeping, informing me that she had not let herself mourn or cry since her own father died eight years ago. What do all these people have in common? They are people sitting around you today. They are all followers of Jesus. And they are all busy with church. But have never slowed down long enough to look inside and say, why do I live the way I live? Why do I do the things I do? All living out of some false identity, some other script. The pleaser, the workaholic, the tough guy, the woman who's all together, the constant worrier. And what happens is when you and I are confronted or challenged with things like this or somebody speaks a, a tough truth in love to you in your life, our defenses and our walls automatically go up and a lot of us isolate and a lot of us run away from community when we should be running the other direction into community, into people that will love you through your mess. And we end up saying things like, well, you know, Pastor John, this is just who I am. Right? I'm not some poser. This is, this is just who I am. This is what we do. This is what's normal for, for me. When, when something is crazy in my life, I just worry a lot. I just stress out, and you don't realize that you're in a cycle of generational stress. Well, you know, my, my, my grandfather drank, and, and, and my dad drank, you know, when, when he was depressed and when he went through a difficult time. So that's just what I do. I, sometimes I drink too much, but it's just who I am. Is it? Like we have no control over the end of our story, that we just accept the script that's been handed to us. And that could have very easily been Jacob's story, but it wasn't. How do you respond when you're living, you realize that you've been living from a script that's not truly who you are? What we can find in the rest of Jacob's story is this journey of immaturity to maturity that God wants to take every single one of us on, including myself, 
right in the middle of it myself. But we learn from Jacob three keys I want to highlight for you through the lens of his stories about how God takes us from the false identity to our gospel identity. So we continue the story, and the first key that we learn from Jacob is this. Stay open. Everybody take your hands like this and just open them up uh, wide like this. Stay open. Everybody say, stay open. open. One of the things we learn from Jacob is that he's a grasper, which means he's not living open to God. He's grasping. He's trying to get what he wants out of life, and there's two ways we can live life, closed-fisted or open to God, and so we're called to stay open. After, you can, you don't have to do that the whole sermon. You can relax, right? After the, East, uh, the Esau debacle, Isaac sends Jacob, his dad sends him away, essentially says, well, there's no women for you in our town, so you need to go to a foreign country and find a wife there. And he sends him to live with his uncle Laban. Everybody say Laban. Laban is a, to put it lightly, a rascal. And so here's Jacob, and he's running from his life from his brother. He betrayed his father. He's literally in the middle of nowhere. His life is a mess. Maybe some of you can identify. And on his way, he camps at a place called Bethel, which is where we get the English Bethel, which is the name of a seminary in the Twin Cities where myself and several others of us went to school. Bethel. He stops at Bethel, and Jacob falls asleep, and he has a dream where God shows up, and there's angels going up and down the stairs, and God is there and has a message for him, and God speaks to him in verse 15. God says this. Some of, some of you need to hear this today. God says, what's more, I am with you, and I will protect you wherever you go. One day I will bring you back to this land, and I will not leave you until I have finished giving you everything I have promised you. In other words, God says, Jacob, to you this morning, your life might be a mess. It might, might not be the working out the way you thought it would. It might not be ideal. You've made some terrible mistakes in your life, Jacob, but my work in you, God says, is far from done. And I am not going to let you go, Jacob, until I give you a brand new identity. So hang with me, hold on to me, and we're going to go on this journey together. And what does Jacob do? He wakes up from this dream, and in verse 16, this is how he responds to God. Let's read this together up on the screen. Surely the Lord was in this place, and I was not aware of it. What a powerful statement. Surely the Lord was in that hospital room for you. Surely the Lord was in the NICU. Surely the Lord was there when your family member got that diagnosis. Surely the Lord was there right in the middle of the heated argument that just about drove you to divorce. Surely the Lord was with, you see, God's been there the whole time. And Jacob's just now learning that. Jacob learns, stay open. Don't live your life like this saying, it's just the way I am. Stay open to the fact that God might have something different for you, an abundant life for you. So number one, stay open. But the story continues in chapter 29, if you're following along. Jacob finally meets Laban, his uncle, his rascal uncle, who has two daughters, Leah and Rachel. So this is starting to sound like a Shakespeare play. He has two daughters, Leah and Rachel, and Jacob immediately, it's like love at first sight. This is kind of the sappy, romantic part of the story. He falls in love with Rachel. Unfortunately, her father Laban will only agree to their marriage unless Jacob works for him for seven years, okay? So verse 20, uh, we pick it up in chapter 29. It says, so Jacob works seven years to pay for Rachel, Okay, now listen to this. This is in the Bible. But his love, you have to read it in this voice. But his love for her was so strong that it seemed to him but a few days. 
It's right there. It's like a sappy romance novel, right? Guys, if you are looking for a pickup line, go home this afternoon, clean the whole house, then go up to your wife with a rose and say, honey, my love for you is so strong that my cleansing of the kitchen seemed but only a few moments. Okay? Don't say I never gave you any tips, okay? It's in the, just say it's biblical, okay? So Jacob works for seven years, okay? Don't overlook this. And then he comes back, and Laban says, uh-uh, actually, forgot to tell you, sorry. In our culture, the older daughter needs to get married before the younger daughter, so you have to marry Leah. And then if you work seven more years, biblical number, so we pick that, seven more years, then you can marry Rachel. And so Jacob marries Leah, and then he marries Rachel, and so we, now he's got sister wives, which is a sermon for another day, which we'll cover at a later time. But don't miss the overarching story here. Jacob is told to wait seven years for something he wants. And as the pleaser, as the grasper, what do you do when that's your script? Pfft, doesn't matter what he says. Life owes me something. I'm a deceiver. I, I, I'm a grasper. So what do you do if you're Jacob? You, you barge into camp in the middle of the night, you grab your woman and you hightail it out of there and you elope. Forget you, Laban. But he doesn't because God is renovating his heart and God is giving him a new identity. And he says, that may be the script I was given, but that's not the new script that God is writing for me. I'm not gonna take it because it's not mine. And he stays faithful. That's the second key on your search for your identity. Stay faithful. Everybody say faithful. faithful. Stay faithful to your true identity, not the false self. In our journey to discover our true identity, this is what God will do. Just like Jacob, he will purposely put you in situations where you can fall back into the false identity or you can step with courage into your new identity. Instead of backing down from another opportunity to serve or lead, some of you would say, I just kind of have this false humility, you know, aw shucks, and, and you don't feel fully prepared. You step into it. You start serving. You sign up for a team. You lead a Bible study. You step into who God's created you to be. You're out on the town and you're bar hopping with your friends because you need to earn their approval somehow by doing what everybody else does. And instead of clamoring for their approval by going along with the crowd who's had a few too many, you say, no, I'm a child of God and God has given me the fruit of the spirit, which is self-control. That's not who I am anymore. And I don't have to do that to earn somebody's approval that I don't even like. I'm gonna be who God's called me to be. Instead of trying to please somebody that you've been dating for a little while by letting the physical relationship move along quicker than it needs to, you don't settle for anything less than God's best for you. And you don't let anybody ever tell you that if you really love them, you need to please them. You don't have anything to prove to anybody. Instead of coming home from work, guys, and staring at the TV, you enter with courage into your wife's world and you engage with her emotionally. Instead of putting up walls of defense every time that you feel a little vulnerable in a small group setting, you let yourself be known. Parents, when your kids ask you a question about faith or God or Jesus, the Bible, you don't delegate it. You don't abdicate your responsibility as the spiritual leaders of your home and say, oh, I don't know, I'm sure Pastor John knows, or just, just go to Sunday school. It's kind of their job to, to teach you the faith anyway. You say, no, I am the spiritual leader of my home. That is my true identity in Christ. And even if my kid asks me a question I don't know, it doesn't mean that you're a failure as a parent. You're a child of God. 
that has been entrusted with another child of God, and it's okay to say, I don't know, but let's go get your Bible and let's learn together. Shake off the false humility and the aw shucks and lead your family spiritually. Step into your true identity. God gives you, we're confronted with the opportunity to revert back to the old self, or in those moments in the crucible, you ask God, who would you have me be right here, right now in this moment? How can I live out of the truth of who I am rather than who I'm trying to be? Stay faithful. Stay faithful. Everybody say faithful. Faithful. Stay faithful just like Jacob did, just like Queen Elizabeth II. So these stories are running parallel between Jacob and Elizabeth. We move ahead in the story of the crown a little bit as well. Elizabeth has countless opportunities to be crushed by the weight of expectations of the crown, to to live the, the script of what the queen is supposed to do. Well, in this next scene I'm going to show you, she encounters an American pastor, an American preacher named Billy Graham. Have you heard of him? Maybe you have. Some of you didn't know this, right? And so Queen Elizabeth, at at her asking, requests Billy Graham to come and preach for the royal family in their private chapel and, uh, and then talk with her afterwards. So watch what happens when a queen that has everything encounters an identity that's deeper and truer than anything that the crown could provide. Let's take a look. As you can tell, everyone else in the royal family feels extremely uncomfortable at church, like there's anywhere that they would rather be, (laughs) except the queen, who looks at the script that she's been handed down from generation to generation in her family that says, when you're royalty, who needs God? And some of you in this search for identity have covered all of that up in the same way with your titles and your positions and your role at work and your accomplishments. And in its place, Elizabeth reveals that behind all the frills and all the popularity and all the press, there is a real her, an identity that centers her and offers her the peace that she longs for a child of God, the deepest part of who I am, underneath everything that the world sees and I try to put out there to make myself feel good, underneath all of that, she says, if you want to know who I really am, Pastor Graham, I'm a little girl that longs for the approval of her father. I'm a child of God. And my question for you this morning is, what is at the core of who you are? What, what, what is your deepest, truest identity? Is it, is it your title as at work? Is it, is it even good things? Is it your role as a parent? Is that your primary identity? I'm a mom, I'm a dad. Is your primary identity that I'm married? I'm finally married so I can feel good about myself. Now, now I know who I am because I'm married and I have comfort and security in that. And don't hear me wrong, all of those things are good things. They just can't satisfy. Parent, spouse, mom, dad, VP, whatever it is, that's not who you truly are. And it will never be enough because it's temporary. It'll never satisfy your soul. For the queen and the same for Jacob in our story, they both choose to stay faithful to their core identity, child of God. How do we respond to the scripts that we've been given? Number one, we stay open. Number two, we stay faithful. And finally, we say persistent. Everybody say persist. Persist. 
Eventually, after 20 years in a foreign land, God tells Jacob to return home. And on his way home, chapter 32, if you're following along in Genesis, chapter 32, his entire caravan stops and he stays on the near side of the river and sends everybody else forward. As the story would have it, do you remember what happened the last time that Jacob camped alone? God showed up. Some of you are really scared of being alone with God. But if you learn anything from Jacob's story, sometimes when you're alone and you're quiet and all the distractions from your life are put aside, God shows up. Verse 24, this left Jacob all alone in the camp and a man came and wrestled with him until the dawn began to break. Never says who this was, but most scholars would agree, an an angel or God himself. Why wrestling? Why would God show up as a wrestling partner for Jacob? Could it be that God was bringing him back to the very place of his deepest wound, the wrestling match in his mother's womb, the place where his false identity was literally born? God will take you back to those vulnerable times and moments in your life in this healing process. Maybe not physically, but he'll take you back to those moments of those words that were spoken over you, those wounds, that baggage you carry with you. God will take you back to those places. And he says, I work all things together for good and I will heal and I will redeem even the most crummy moments of your life. And he comes to Jacob as a wrestling partner. Verse 25, when the man saw that he would not win the match, he touched Jacob's hip and he wrenched it out of its socket. Verse 26, then the man said, let me go for the dawn is breaking. But Jacob said, I will not let you go until you bless me. Now, why would Jacob ask for a blessing when he already got one at the beginning of the story? Because it wasn't his to begin with. He stole it. God can't bless who you're pretending to be but he longs to bless who you really are. And this time, Jacob says, I'm gonna do it the right way. I'm not a deceiver anymore. I'm done with that script. Verse 27, the other wrestler says, what's your name, the man asked. Funny, I think, because they wrestled all night and never took the time to introduce themselves. He replied, my name is Jacob. The other man says, your name will no longer be Jacob, the man said. Now you will be called Israel because you have fought with God and with men and have won. In the place of his deepest wound, God takes him back, not only redeems it, but gives him a new name, Israel, which literally means one who has prevailed with God. Why a new name? (laughs) Because a new name is a new identity, and a new identity means you get a new script for your life. And that's what God is offering you this morning. You don't have to live up to everybody's expectations and be who the world has told you to be. You get to live into who you truly are as a follower of Jesus Christ. A new identity is given to you. Why? Because he prevailed, because he persisted. One of the things that I love about Jacob in this story is his tenacity, his hunger for God. Are you hungry to know who you truly are this morning? Are you ready to stop posing and stop coping and ready to start living in and truly experiencing abundant life? Take a cue from Jacob. Stay open, stay faithful, and stay persistent in your own wrestling with God. If you want to know who you truly are, don't go looking inside yourself or asking the world. Ask 
God, the one that created you in the first place, the one that has a new name and a new identity and a new script for you. And several thousands years later, the Apostle John is writing on the island of Patmos, and he writes in 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, and declares this new identity over us as Jesus followers. See how very much the Father loves us, for he calls us his children, and that is who we truly are. Men, you are a son, a deeply beloved son of God. Receive it. Ladies, you are a dearly beloved daughter of the Most High King. Don't let anybody tell you otherwise. And for all of us, because of that, you have nothing to prove to anybody today. You have nothing to earn in this life. It's been done for you if you would put your faith in it. You have all the significance in the world right now, not because of your performance, but because Jesus is your significance. How would your life look different if you lived that way this week? What if I told you that Christian maturity and this journey of faith is about believing who God says you already are and learning to live like it's true? That's the point of all of this church Christianity stuff. Believing who God says you already are and learning to live like it's true. That's Jacob's story. That's Elizabeth's story. And that can be your story. Ask him. Ask him. Amen? Let's stand and prepare our hearts for communion together.